Welcome to the Walter Paisley Movie House, where we celebrate the little engines that could not. Coming to you from Nilbog Manor Studios, our music is by Jonathan Harmon, and I am your host, Dylan Rory. We are brought to you in part by our partner sponsor, Scarlet Lane Brewing. With five locations in the Indianapolis area, there are plenty of opportunities to try the official beer of horror. Today's guest is an esteemed director, writer, and producer of both the stage and screen. He exploded onto the scene with his Academy Award-nominated 1970 short feature, Sticky My Fingers, Fleet My Feet. That was quickly followed by the 1971 feature film, Let's Scare Jessica to Death, a low-budget thriller which he also co-wrote that has become an essential cult classic. Since then, he has gone on to work with some of the most iconic film and TV shows of all time. In his long and illustrious career, uh, you know what, I should just write this easier to read, shouldn't I? In his long and illustrious career, he has worked with legendary names like Nick Nolte, Ernie Hudson, Abe Vigoda, Tyne Daly, Frederick Forrest, Michael Moriarty, Robert De Niro, Cloris Leachman, Charles Durning, Sam Elliott, Val Basolio, Anne Wedgworth, Danny Aiello, Dennis Christopher, and Mariel Hemingway. Of more interest to the listeners of this show, he has also worked with cult movie superstars like Anne Ramsey, Kristen Baker, Zora Lampere, William Forsythe, Rita Taggart, Vincent Gardenia, Glennis O'Connor, Marie Claire Costello, Gretchen Corbett, Mark Ralston, Selma Diamond, and Putney Swope himself, Arnold Johnson. Along with his late wife, Dorothy Tristan, they created a series of dramatic films and character studies, culminating in the deeply personal 2015 semi-autobiographical The Looking Glass, written by Miss Tristan and featuring her return to film acting after a 30-year hiatus. Please welcome the man who may still regret not being available to direct the premiere of Arthur Copet's avant-garde masterpiece, Oh Dad, Poor Dad, Mama's Hung You in the Closet, and I'm Feeling So Sad, John D. Hancock. Wow. How what are a, you? Oh, what an intro. <laughs> I just tried to cover some of the highlights. How are you uh, interested in Kristen Baker? Uh, well, Friday the 13th, part two, of course, okay. is, a, is a classic of hers. You worked with her a couple times. I always believed in her. I thought she, you know, I, I, I liked her a lot. Yeah. 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 She's, I, she's great. She's a, she's a cult legend for sure. People absolutely just love her. Uh, she was in Gas Pump Girls also. Um, just some other, some great cult films, which is kind of the theme of this whole podcast. But, um, so, if you don't mind, I'd like to go back a little bit to your origin. You were you were born in Kansas City and then grew up in Chicago, uh, kind of straddling Chicago and Laporte, uh, Indiana, where you your family had a farm. And my father worked at NBC. He was a musician and played bass and tuba at NBC in Chicago. And weekends and summers uh, were on a fruit farm near Laporte, Indiana, and they I, they bought uh, the first farm the year I was born. So. Uh, it's, it's been in the family. We still have it. I'm actually living there now. Yeah. Yeah. And so you obviously had a, got an interest in music from your father and started playing violin. Yeah. Yeah. I was, I wanted to be a violinist, but, uh, I wasn't good enough. I think so I switched. <laughs> I went to Tanglewood one summer and I, I, I was thought I was kind of a hotshot violinist. I was a concert master of the Chicago youth orchestra and all that. But I got to Tanglewood and there was a 14-year-old boy that was twice as good as I was or more. So I thought, mm, Yeah, I feel that. <laughs> so whenever I watch an eight-year-old on YouTube play guitar, I just want to throw all mine away. I get it. 
<laughs> and your mother was a school teacher. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So were you in Chicago like proper or were you in the suburbs around Chicago when you were growing up? Um, grade school in Berwyn, high school in Cicero. Okay. Uh, so uh, Western suburbs. Yeah. Were you interested in films at that time? Uh, only to go to the Roxy Theater in Berwyn and love, you know, love them. Well, do you remember the first movie you saw? Uh, no, I don't. Um, I remember being taken screaming from the Wizard of Oz because the trees reached out and grabbed people. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm sure it wasn't the first. That, that movie is legendary for traumatic childhood experiences. The first time I saw it was at a, a uh, house that did um, uh, sh showed old movies. Uh, down in Louisville, and and I remember crawling under the seat when the witch appeared on the the crystal ball. That did me in. <laughs> it, it takes it to the edge, right? Yeah. yeah. Were you? Did you go to movies a lot? Were you just a yeah. uh, movie kid? Yeah. You know, double feature every Saturday. And, mm -hmm. Yeah. Did you sit through? Uh, where, was it like the type of movie house where you could just go pay and then just sit all day and oh, sit through reel after reel? Yeah, and their cartoons and newsreels, and you know. Yeah. <laughs> and they showed, you know, it wasn't. Uh, I mean, it wasn't only the current of things, but there was there were a certain number of revivals stuck in there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I remember seeing some John Ford pictures, and I mean, it was. Oh wow! Yeah. The, getting to see those on the big screen must have been. And, and it's a sad state. We don't have many revival houses anymore doing that kind of thing. Oh, it sure is. Yeah, I remember going, um, my mom taking us, I was probably eight, and she took us to see Giant on the big screen at a revival house. And I, I didn't, at eight, I didn't get it, but I just was amazed by the color and the, just the yeah. expanse of everything. Yeah. I should, I, I, I actually have never seen Giant in its entirety. Oh, it's a great movie. It was wow. my mother's favorite. So she's, she, wow. she insisted we go see it in the big screen. I had a, a a brief affair with an actress who was in it and uh, said something very interesting. Um, that whenever George Stevens uh, couldn't solve the problems of a scene, he would say, I got to go look for locations. And he'd fly off in a helicopter to search for locations. And after flying a little bit, he, he would come back and he would know what to do in the scene. I thought it was a, a very clever directorial ploy. I've I've never had the time or the helicopter to do it. <laughs> so that's that was just a big Hollywood way of stepping away for a moment. So, yeah, yeah. It's like you could either go to the, the men's room or the porta potty or whatever. The right. Locations are counting away. <laughs> Can you say who it was that you were with? Ina Ballin. Oh, okay. Wow. Well, that's cool. I never get dirt this early in an interview. That's pretty nice. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> so you um, you had said that when you went to schools, when you started getting interested in theater, um, and that was at Harvard? Yes, I started direct. I mean, I, I decided <sighs> I, I better exit music and find something else to do so yeah i i got i, I directed a lot of plays in college it's so what what era were you at harvard 
Well, I graduated in 61. So. 61. Okay. Yeah. Did I have to ask, did you ever run into Tom Lehrer? I think he was still teaching adjunct there on occasion. I think he was, I mean, he might have gone by then. I think he was. Okay. I'm he's, I'm slightly obsessed with him. So (laughs) Tim Leary, you could say, did I run into him? No, I didn't. But yeah, I took a psychiatry course, a psychology course, and he had devised the most clever graph of personality. It was a circle chart and you could be placed on it in relationship to sadism and masochism and happiness. And so, I mean, it was, it was uh, a very, very clever visual representation of a human personality. I mean, he, he was not only, I think he was smart other than LSD. Yeah. Yeah. But I think before LSD at any rate. Right. <laughs> he may have ended up doing some damage to his frontal lobe at some point. <laughs> so you're, you're in college and you're getting into theater. I was, I have a degree in theater as well. And so I'm, I'm always curious what, what drew you to it initially? I don't know. Um, I know what drew me to directing, and it's power. <laughs> I mean, uh, I, I directed uh, Buchner's uh, Wojciech, mm. the first thing I did there. Wow. And uh, That's a pretty heavy piece to start with. And I remember uh, it was some kind of a party. <laughs> and I had a cast, maybe 20 people. I was running them on and off stage. I said, okay, now everybody off. Okay, now come back on. Okay, now everybody off again. Now come back on. And just running them back and forth, the power of that, I got a little heft. (laughs) And I thought, ooh, maybe this is something positive to do with all the bad parts of myself. So, (laughs) Yeah, us actors hated directors like you. I remember that. And when, once you started getting into, I mean, something like Butzak is, is, I'm mean, granted it's Harvard. So you, you probably had the smarts to be able to tackle that, but it is as a first time director going in with something like that. It, how much of your musicianship translated toward that? It does. It does. And not through the Alban Berg, which I never really was a fan of, but, <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I have found, uh music to be helpful in in directing that rhythms and and pattern and and then disrupting the pattern and uh i mean they have very a lot in common in a way yeah Yeah. i've always been fascinated when when an artist changes medium completely yeah. And it and it seems to just work so well. How those there's there's always those commonalities that kind of yeah, make them fit and work for you. Without your being aware of it or knowing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you get out of school, and d- am I right on this? You got your start doing Brecht's Man Equals Man off Broadway. Yes, we called it a man's a man. There were different titles. Man's a man. Okay. Well, I I did it at Harvard actually. You know, I had a I had several mentors. Harold Clerman was a very important mentor, and Alan Schneider helped me a little bit in this time. But the main one was Eric Bentley. Oh, wow. He was a big critic at that point. Yeah. And um, 
he in my senior year he was at uh, at Harvard uh, giving the, the Norton lectures that are a big deal. Mm-hmm. So he was living there in Robert Lowell's house while Robert Lowell lived in his Riverside. <laughs> <laughs> so we we got to be very good friends, and I did uh, his translation of. Um, uh, Caucasian Chalk Circle and the just built Loeb Drama Center. It was very successful. Okay. And uh, so we, we got to be close. And then he said, uh, he helped me found a summer theater there that summer I graduated in the Loeb Drama Center. Uh, he went and talked to McGeorge Bundy and talked him into letting me run it as the mm-hmm. director. So I did A Man's A Man there in his translation. And then... Uh, a year later, we did, or so we did it in New York. I mean, Eric got me my first four jobs, actually. So uh, that's a mentor. I mean, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So. Um, was that summer theater? Was it a company stock or were you just auditioning for each piece you did? No, we we, we had a company of like 12 actors and then pickups for the individual, you know. We, okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, around Cambridge. But uh, yeah, I, I found. It was Faye Dunaway was in it. And wow. Jane Alexander. And I mean, uh, I found her in New York. I mean, it was, I, I auditioned in New York and around Boston and maybe someplace else too. I forget. But anyway, uh, we built a little company and did four plays and it was quite successful. What was it like getting into New York and you're doing something, you're, you're off Broadway, but you're, you're working in, probably the the nexus of stage work is New York City. You're there working right out of college. What did that feel like? Well, I I found it difficult to adjust to the the level of, um, it's not uh, vituperation, although it can be that, uh, in rehearsals and, and in the work. Hey guys, sorry to cut in. I was interviewing John and he lost his internet. And so we had to reconnect the next day. And that's where we're picking up right now. We were talking about uh, when I first got to New York. Yeah, yeah. Just the experience of coming out of school and going straight to the stage in the big city. Yeah, I found it hard. There's a whole kind of ethos in New York uh, about street and who's from the toughest neighborhood (laughs) and um devastating things are said in rehearsal you're no man no you're no woman you know and um i found it hard my i never heard my parents fight so i found it hard to uh swim in that uh kind of vituperative sea but i Mm -hmm. learned i learned how to say devastating things back Well, it is kind of the how you deal with New Yorkers. They're going to be honest with you. You got to be honest right back. (laughs) That's kind of what I've always appreciated about that part of the world. Um, With my with my day job, I would spend a lot of time in Jersey and South Carolina. And in South Carolina, they would they would they would be nice, but they weren't kind. Whereas in New Jersey, they were kind, but they were honest. (laughs) Yeah, always knew where I stood. So you're you're in there. You're um, you're basically getting knocked around a little, I'm sure, and and learning the ropes as you're going through it. 
um, with a mentor like you had, right? Uh, being able to have that to go back to, to be able to go talk to him, I'm sure became kind of a solve for that. <clears throat> well, Eric, I mean, we the first we did a man to man, and and you know he came to re, you know the auditions and rehearsals and previews. I mean, it, mm -hmm. we we uh, you know saw each other five or six days a week, so it wasn't yeah. Going on off and talking to him, we were constantly. Uh, okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So that must have been at least uh, having something to lean on. I'm sure helped a lot as you're getting your sea legs. It did. It did. But I mean, I mean, Eric was not a good director. He had directed mm -hmm. a uh, a very badly directed version of Good Woman of Sichuan with Uta Hagen. So. Uh, it was not, but I mean, I, I, I listened to him quite a bit. Yeah. Yeah. So you say Uta Hagen, were you rubbing elbows with people like Uta Hagen and, and uh, others out in New York in the theater scene? Yes. Not her. I, I, I worked with her years later on a television show. We did a twilight mm -hmm. zone together, but yeah. Yeah. I saw I, that. I, I knew her husband. I mean, I, I, mm -hmm. they wanted me to teach at uh, their, uh, bring off studio you know okay it's always so interesting to me talking to people um i had debbie rashan um on here the actress and early on in her career she was a teenager in new york um and working with uda hagen directly um in okay. as in acting classes would just be amazing and and harold clerman got me into the uh actor's studio so oh I mean, great that's where i mostly rubbed you know mm-hmm did you were you taking acting classes no to help better you okay i know some directors will do that to help kind of give them should have but i didn't okay well at what point did you decide i want to make a movie and that would have been your short film uh fleet of uh, sticky fingers and fleet of feet well uh it was considerably before then actually i uh after uh directing a couple things in New York. Uh, and before I went to San Francisco to take over the Actors Workshop, mm -hmm. I optioned a book uh, called The End of the Road by John Barth. And um, tried very hard to get that on as a feature film. And wrote, you know, six versions of the screenplay and was never mm -hmm. to get it on. So then when I... Uh, Went to San Francisco, I let the option lapse and uh, it was picked up. And eventually, uh, my wife's first husband directed it with her and the female lead. So, okay. there are many connections with the end of the road in my life. <laughs> and then, did was Sticky of Fingers, Fleet of Feet, was that shot on the West Coast or? It's shot the, in Central Park. It's in about, Central Park. Okay, I thought so. It looked like Central Park. He's the friend that played touch football. In yeah. yeah, it's an interesting little film, and it and it got an Oscar nod. Um, as yeah. I bartended early in my life um, when I was in college, um, and I it was near Butler University here in Indianapolis. I don't know if you're familiar, yeah, sure. but um, that mo a lot of my customer base were guys like that. Yeah. They would come in and just fill my ears about the glory days of playing baseball at Butler. 
yeah. just, you know. <laughs> well, it was it was an extremely lucky choice of subject. Mm-hmm. It's a subject that people really liked and studio executives really liked. It was kind of in the wake of the Kennedys where they were playing touch football in their high honest right. uh, compound and and all of these um you know executives at the studios all wanted to do that so yeah. I mean, it made it very quickly made the rounds of all the development people and the top people and <laughs> they all every studio said oh we want to make pictures with you what do you want to do so i'd send them things and they never wanted to do them right <laughs> but finally um william wyler's daughter uh kathy wyler mm-hmm. who had loved it uh recommended me to the B.S. Moss Enterprises to direct uh, Let's Scare Jessica to Death. So, okay. I mean, that sticking my fingers, feet, my feet got me my first two features. It got me the that, and it got me... Uh, Bang the drum? Yeah. That was... It, with Sticking My Fingers, you know, it's a... It's an interesting film. It's got a lot of action in it what i noticed first and foremost and i always look at this when i know somebody's coming from the stage and moving into film is are they going to stage this like a stage piece am i going to feel a proscenium going around each frame no. not at all not at all you and it, and it moved yeah. on with the rest of your work you yeah. seem to be able to put a distinct line between what you were staging and what you were putting on film well thank you that's good i'm glad Hey guys, I know this is becoming my most interrupted episode yet, but I needed to jump in here and talk about what's coming up. John is about to tell a story about Charles Durning, and if you know anything about Charles Durning, there's a lot said about his war record. The story that John tells is not one that I could verify. I did uh, as much research as I could looking around for anything about this. I found nothing about the story that's about to be told that John says was relayed to him by Charles Durning himself. So I'm not endorsing this story. I don't know that it's real or not. Uh, Simply a story being told that I wanted to make sure I made that clear before we move on. Back to the show. Yeah, and it, it, as the as the movie started, the short as I was watching it, I'm thinking, okay, where is this going? Where is this going? There's a lot of conversation between wife and husband. Then action, 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 action as they're playing football. Which again, for somebody coming from stage work to film, I thought was a pretty bold choice, and it worked really well. Very young Charles Durning in there too. Yeah, <laughs> really well, we, interesting. And then my, my Pittsburgh company, so we we knew. Mm-hmm. We- theater so you did have a history with him he's such an interesting man oh yeah yeah Yeah. he um uh was i he was part of the liberation of uh i believe dachau if i remember right um he he'd seen some stuff in his day during world war ii um and came out of that and went into acting he confessed to me that wounded on the second floor of a building someplace in germany he had been so frightened at someone coming up the stairs that he had shot an american soldier oh my god yeah it's one of those uh things like uh born on the fourth of july yeah yeah this was one of the tragedies of charlie's life i mean that's 
He, just, I said I was just so scared, and there I saw somebody came in the door, and I shot him. I'm sure. Oh my God, yeah. I'd never heard that story. That is harrowing. Well, wow. it was told to me in the middle of the night, late night rehearsal for a man's a man in Pittsburgh. Mm -hmm. One of my techniques is to turn out the lights sometimes in a rehearsal, and it was told to me from the dark by Charlie. I'm sitting in the audience and he was on stage and he related this horrible experience. Wow. Yeah. Wow. That is, um, I'm, how did it alter your dealings with him as a director? Not on a personal level, but from a professional level. I guess, you, if you know an actor has that experience in their I past. I didn't. I just respected him for being that honest and thought yeah. Thought it might help his performance i don't know yeah okay yeah okay it, it didn't really wow yeah. um <laughs> so then that leads you to as you said that led you to your next two features um and let's scare jessica to death as this is a cult movie show we got to talk about it a little bit and i know you have talked this movie to death so i'm not going to ask you a bunch of questions you've been asked before about it um but i i am curious about a few things um there's and it's it's this isn't anything but common knowledge i know that there's a lot of comparisons to it and the novel camilla the irish novel camilla um were you thinking of that as you were I making that no, i had no knowledge okay of, yeah but it the, the haunting robert wise picture yeah and uh i suppose uh the turn of the screw Henry absolutely Henry. yeah, yeah. principle I was curious, Camilla's come up a few times on this program. Jack Shoulder is currently actually trying to option it and uh, get it made as a feature. And it's come up with other directors I've talked to. It's such an interesting, it, it, it's this obscure Irish vampire novel just keeps popping up. I, I, I don't look at it. I have no knowledge of it. Um, so with Scare Jessica to Death, you're you're taking the, the pretty common trope of fish out of water um but in this case it's somebody who automatically is untrustworthy right our main character none of us can really do we believe anything that's happening here right and i love yeah yeah it's a I lot like, of fun i admire untrustworthiness and central characters right yeah I, I enjoyed i i it's one of those movies i saw you know very young um uh, probably too young um and then you know it would pick up at the video store every other weekend and watch again um as i grew up and i'm not alone in that it's it's one of those movies that still today has quite a following it, on the budget you made it at um the way you were filming it with a lot of exteriors um just the simple practicalities of filmmaking. How are, how was that affecting you when you're out in a, there was Connecticut, right? Yeah. And it looked like maybe coming in into autumn because there was a lot yeah, of color well, on the trees. Yeah, how yeah. cold was that water? That's what I kept oh. thinking the entire time. <laughs> I just watched it again and I'm like, how cold is that water? <laughs> it was brutal. It was really cool. Yeah. Well, I, I quickly learned that if you would, you could save time if you let God light it. <laughs> Putting in an interior where the DP had to light it. So right. That made one uh, push more of it outdoors, maybe. Um, 
I, 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 I loved Zora's performance was one of the main mm -hmm. things that I remember about it. Uh, I remember how fast the shoot was. I fired the first DP and uh, I'm glad I did. Yeah. Yeah. How, uh, how far into the process were you when week, that happened? Week. Okay. I let him go the first weekend. Yeah. Um, the, uh, I respected the Mosses, the father and son. They had knowledge mm -hmm. of, uh, because they were exhibitors, you know, they had the criteria. Yeah theater and a whole chain of theaters and they had knowledge of what audiences would like and they were able to say oh in this scene they'll go get candy <laughs> and, you're talking to charles moss as the producer yeah yeah mm -hmm. and his father yeah they were mm -hmm. yeah charles moss senior and junior yeah and uh i enjoyed them we had a it was a and, and the guy that's become my best friend bill Botolato, who's produced mm -hmm. top gun and about schmidt and, uh, yeah weeds and you know bang it on slowly a lot of things yeah um was the production manager so that was a happy thing on that it, it is when you're when you're shooting something like that in less than a month um with really the the only other experience you have under your belt at that point is a short film um there's granted it's low budget but it's still more yeah. money than you've had to put a production like this up yeah um it sounds like there probably wasn't as much pressure as there might normally be under that since you, it sounds like you had a pretty amicable relationship with all the producers involved. Um, but, but were you feeling, um, I, I guess the pressure, especially when you're coming off a short film that's had an Oscar nomination, are, are you feeling like now, now everything I do has to be perfect? No. <laughs> I mean, it's probably best if you're not but <laughs> this is data. i mean i i have alarming self-acceptance uh you know i mean probably some of the worst people in the world have that. <laughs> but, uh, I, I mean i just you know every day do the do the best you can and mm -hmm. you know sometimes um People have, have on, later in my career have said to me, are we, are we shooting a picture or are we shooting a schedule? <laughs> uh, my answer has often been, I'm shooting the schedule. Uh, and because I have, I feel an obligation to bring it in on time and on mm -hmm. budget, right? Yeah. Uh, and if this is the number of days that you have the money to pay for, I'll, I'll do it in that. So don't under schedule it, you know, just as a, as a tool, cause I'll shoot the schedule. Right. You know? Uh, so if you, if you want actually, if you're greedy for more quality, then schedule more days. You know? Right. Right. Yeah. And and shooting to a schedule like that are are you at that point especially are you looking at you know sixteen hour days or were you keeping them pretty short? There was a few uh, fourteen and sixteen hour days, mostly twelve. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I've come to liking to shoot a shorter day, though. Of course, I'm old now. <laughs> but yeah, I like a kind of 
10 hour days yeah yeah it's uh i've always respected the directors who could do that keep it yeah. you know I'm, I'm making this movie we're going to get it done in this many days and we're going to shoot this many hours a day and we will make that work yeah um, and it's few and far between who can do that though uh fred olin ray is really strict about keeping it on a regular day yeah. schedule and things yeah um when, when you're when you're planning for something like that in the pre-production I'm assuming you're just storyboarding the hell out of stuff and no, you know I, exactly what you're doing when you're going into those shots. No, <clears throat> really? No, wow. I, I, I've storyboarded certain action sequences later, mm -hmm. uh, but uh, no, I wasn't storyboarding. I just, uh, well, you know, every picture I've done, I've rehearsed. Okay. I, I say, right. you know, I come out of the theater and I don't know how to, to do it if you don't let me rehearse and they mm -hmm. have to pay for the rehearsal and they don't want to do it but they do because no one wants to say okay well then just don't let it be as good so, <laughs> so they they you know they fight you a little and then they say okay well if that's what you need we'll do it so right. i think i had rehearsed it two or three weeks you know oh okay wow so I, I had a pretty good idea of of the scenes uh but you know you get to the location and and um the blocking changes and what was of course yeah sometimes left and that's a little confusing sometimes but yeah you can adapt interesting well from that you move directly into bang the drum slowly which um you know it, it's now we look back on it and it's the star-studded film um very critically respected walking into that one the subject matter now we're kind of going back to a sports themed film um i are you a sports fan i was wondering that when i was watching yes, sticking my yeah. fingers yeah okay i i get that feeling I play, especially. I play football i play baseball yeah. okay okay so and and bang the drum first and foremost it was michael moriarty's i think third film um you put him in the lead and he is, I think he's one of the most underrated actors out there right now. He's such a great character actor, but he can take a lead also yeah. and carry a film. And this is one of those movies where he's absolutely doing all the heavy lifting. Yeah. And uh, I think a lot of people, you know, turn toward De Niro because just because of the history now with De Niro, but watching that movie, it's oh, all you. Michael. You feel that. Well, you know, it was <clears throat> the, the crew was divided. Each there were camps. There was the De Niro, De Niro camp, <laughs> and I was strongly in the the De Niro camp. Yeah, yeah. but yes, Michael uh, was was wonderful. I mean, they're both great. Yeah. I, it's, you can't, especially the early work of De Niro and Vincent Gardinia also. Oh, I think didn't uh, he get a he got a nomination yeah, for this? Yeah, he got an Oscar nom for this. Um, I mean, everybody involved in this movie, um, Selma Diamond and Wedgworth, it, it's just filled with these great character actors yeah. who uh, I love a good character actor. It's my favorite thing. We just had Larry Hankin here the other day and, yeah. you know, getting to talk to somebody who's those journeyman actors who just takes role after role. It's especially with Michael Moriarty, yeah. where he can play, you see him play heavies, you see him play, I always think of him in, um, uh, Pale Rider, where he's playing this kind of milk toast guy who's yeah. essentially being cucked by this guy who's come into town on his horse. Um, and, and he plays it so well, and you, you just feel that coming out of him. What was it like that early in his career working with him? 
Well, he was, um, in comparison to De Niro, who was absolutely steady and mm -hmm. himself every day and kind of beady uh, on the work. I mean, he mm -hmm. wasn't screwing around. Michael was subject to moods a little bit, and some days he wasn't mm. feeling as well. Maybe he was hungover. I don't know. <laughs> but but uh, I, I was troubled by uneven temperament and uneven. Yeah. Uh, he was being an actor then. <laughs> I guess. Uh, we, 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 you know, the, the producer was so difficult on that that everybody else got along it was like it, it was all maury rosenfield being crazy uh not wanting me to shoot close-ups making me change de niro's hairstyle halfway through oh my god i mean i said maury it won't match he said people change people get different haircuts i said but not within a scene <laughs> i don't care i'm gonna shut down if we don't change you know so <laughs> I had to go to Bobby and explain we were going to change his hair. So he said, oh, God. But we did it. But, yeah, Maury was, made a, a, a crazy scene every day and all the way through the editing, too. That was a crazy phone call every day. Oh, what a headache. Just oh, that kind of finger in the pie the entire time? Oh, yeah. Just, you know, fretting, fretting, fretting. He was just a very high-strung. Oh. Yeah. Well, as you said early on there, that, that common enemy can kind of bring everybody else together, which yeah, is, is yeah. helpful, but still the headaches that come I mean, with you it. You can see that De Niro and Moriarty uh, could easily have been at odds. Yeah. They were not. There was no, nothing ever that, uh, you know. Mm -hmm. And, of course, Vincent Gardenia, uh, legend. Yeah. Um, he just came in and did it. I never. That's what I, I was. I was going to guess. He probably just showed up, did his lines. Yeah, <laughs> got to get back I, to the track. I, I love not having to direct. I love just being there like a fan. Oh, that's so good. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It, I have to ask about Selma Diamond, whom I just love. Um, she's one of my favorite things in my favorite year, which is one of my favorite films. She's so great in that, and I, she's wonderful in this as well as Tootsie. How was she? Oh, she was fun. She's fun. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> as well. And Phil Foster was good. I, yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I wanted Charlie Durning for that part, but he had another job. Yeah. You also had a very young Danny Aiello in that. Oh, yeah. His first, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that, he's a, a character. Was a character. He's dead. Yeah. I think he was a character his entire life. <laughs> yeah. I like him. I, I'm a Danny Aiello fan. And then I did a, a, a Lady Blue with him. <clears throat> Yes, yeah. He later, um, the, Paul Schaefer uh, and Tom Leopold tell this great story about going in to see a, a preview um, of a musical he was doing about Al Capone. <laughs> and it was just them in the audience and him singing at them the entire time. It just, oh, I, I, also, I also did one of his... Uh his shows too speaking of singing yeah yeah the um what that was bella ventura yes bella ventura yeah <laughs> uh bob who's the guy he died of a heroin overdose uh from cracker uh, bob um he was in uh, uh television show with uh, uh 
Candice Bergen. Uh, oh, uh, pa Past Italian, Pastorelli? Yeah. Pastorelli. Pastorelli, yeah, 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 yeah. That, you know, there are two things the Italian-American community is really mortified about. One is the mafia. The other is Della Ventura. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> that's a good line if <laughs> Della Ventura was an odd show it was, it was a strange show it, I mean it mixed like hard plot with just such sugar yeah yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah. well after bang the drum slowly you start just kind of moving through and uh, and that was was it in baby blue is that where you met dorothy i knew dorothy we were neighbors in sneedman's landing back in new york when she did the end of the road okay okay that was uh, i mean i i tried to put the make on her but she wouldn't wasn't having it <laughs> yeah then, uh, she <clears throat> We're both divorced, or she's divorced, and I'm about to be. And she came in to read for me for uh, Baby Blue Marine. And okay. she didn't part, but she wanted to meet me again, so that was good. <laughs> and Baby Blue Marine is another one where you've just got a cast of, well, Glennis O'Connor comes back. You've got her again. Uh, but Bruno Kirby, who... Uh, just a great Catherine Hellmond, Adam Arkin, a very young Adam Arkin. Yeah, I wanted him for the lead. That's, oh, really? I fought so hard to have him play the Jan Michael Vincent part. Yeah. He would have been perfect for it. Uh, he absolutely would have. Yeah. Uh, he's he's one of those. Of course, his father is, I could talk for hours about Alan Arkin just in the in-laws alone. But <laughs> But Adam obviously inherited that talent. He's great. Yeah. He's a great dramatic and comedic actor. Yeah. Um, the, the softness and the, I mean, he he would not be a good Marine. You'd, and yeah, Jan, <laughs> Jan probably would have been a terrible Marine, but appears to be to have been a good Marine. You know, he looks. Yeah, like, yeah. Know, yeah. <laughs> and you got a couple Barrymore showing up in that. So yeah. it's um, just in small roles and and. You know, John's in there uncredited, and uh, it's it's just interesting to see them pop up. Yeah. Was that were you just like I want to get a Barrymore? No, I always wonder on those where you where you see like some legends pop up. How much of that's just I'm a fan and I want to work with them? <laughs> I don't even remember what what did he do in it. He was uh, John was a uh, like an uncredited role. Um, I can't even remember what it was. Um, Where can I? So maybe he wasn't. Yeah, it just well, yeah, it is IMDb. I didn't see him when I watched it, but I going by IMDb. However, I did see um, John Blythe Barrymore in there. He's credited as idiot number two. So <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I remember him. Yeah. So as you're you're moving along, then making these films, at what point were you out on the? Did you move out to the West Coast then? For I actually have this written somewhere in my shortly notes. After, uh, shortly after uh, Bang the Drum Slowly. Yeah. Okay. And you went to San Francisco to become artistic director. That was years earlier. 
that was in that was earlier i'm sorry okay okay all right so after banging the drum you're going out to the west coast then to to live the hollywood lifestyle right (laughs) living with lindsey wagner at that point yeah yeah destroying my marriage and that Mm -hmm. was yeah and that i between uh, just the chaos that was going in your life at that point as well as going to the West Coast, which is a uh, an experience for anybody, um, just even to visit, but to go there and live and become part of that culture yeah. is a little shocking, I'm sure. It was. It was. I, rem- I, I remember <laughs> sitting on the deck of my beach house, staring at the waves that were the same every day and thinking, Jesus, am I going to be able to write here? You know. Yeah. yeah. What What do you mean? What was it about that that? Well, just the sameness. I mean, yeah. you go to the Cape or Montauk or something. Their waves are different, and mm-hmm. but just the the lap lap of waves in the Santa Monica Bay, uh, and the heat, and mm-hmm. also when I moved out there, um, everyone told me I would hate it from New York, right? Mm-hmm. So I was determined to like it. And I, I did for the first six months. I mean, um, the when I went out there, the hills were covered with mustard and then with California poppies. And mm-hmm. But then as my relationships with my ex-wife, my first wife and Lindsay got more and more tangled, the hills turned brown and everything was dead and the... <laughs> Waves are lapping, and yes, I, I, it, 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 it just I, became a metaphor for you. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, how long did you end up staying out there before you decided you'd had enough? Well, Dorothy and I got married, bought a, a wonderful house uh, mm-hmm. above the ocean in Malibu, and uh, mm-hmm. twenty years, and then it yeah. burned in one of those big wildfires, and we moved back here, and like. 95. Mm-hmm. So while you were there, um, you end up doing a lot of TV work as well as feature film work. Right. Um, the did some Hill Street Blues. I think he did five Twilight Zones. So the reboot yeah, of the yeah. Twilight Zones they did, um, which was a great series. That 80s Twilight Zone series was pretty solid across the board. Feldegar was a wonderful executive producer. They yeah. A really good staff, a good cameraman, good. Mm-hmm. casting people it was good yeah they were they were always um it, it, there was a lot of homage to the original without being a slave to it i yeah. think it's the, the best way to describe that that series but it you know i think it it only was up for a couple of maybe a year year and a half um but they crammed a lot into that and to be able to get five episodes of that and uh, such a short series, they must have liked your work. I'm assuming. Oh yeah, yeah. We had a, I had a good, yeah, yeah. It, in movies, I tried, to, I tried to get Phil Daguerre to produce Weeds, and he wanted to do it, but we were never able to set it up with him. Well, that's actually I was going to go <laughs> into Weeds now. Um, it's again a film that was written by you and Dorothy. And I, I, I've heard you say in other interviews that when you're advising 
um, young filmmakers. It's that you you need to be personal, stay personal with the story you're trying to tell. Um, and I feel that in a lot of what you guys did together, you and Dorothy did together, that it was something that meant something to you. Yeah. Well, Weeds did for sure. Yeah. We're, we're, we're writing about a, an inmate in San Quentin, which of mm -hmm. course we aren't, but we certainly identified with the trappedness and the, mm -hmm. you know, it's, it's about us in LA. Yeah. Right. That's what I was going to ask. Yeah. <laughs> hey, did that help being able to, to tell that story um, in a, in a metaphorical way? Did that, it did. It helped, helped you guys. It, you know, I mean, I I was very kind of destroyed by being fired on Jaws too, and uh, I didn't want to breeze over that, but I wasn't sure how much you'd want to talk about it. <laughs> but, uh, I mean, the main thing I learned was Jesus. I better get back to the kind of subject that I went into the business to do, and yeah. weeds was that. And, yeah. And it was very satisfying to do. It was once it got bottle auto produced. It I, Nick mm -hmm. and I uh, grew very fond of each other. We had a good time, and it was, uh, I thought, an important subject. Yeah. yeah, it is, and it's a great movie. Nick Nolte, uh, you know, again, he's a guy that seems like a character actor, but he's he is a leading man in so many films and does a great job. But in this one, a supporting cast like with Ernie Hudson, who is I mean, he's Ernie Hudson. He's incredible. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and and then, what's that? Bill Forsyth. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Bill. Yeah. He's a, he's a guy you just want to watch a movie he's in, no yeah. matter how bad it is. If he's in it, he's going to bring it up. Uh, of course, the great Ann Ramsey, uh, yeah. just yeah. a delight. <laughs> yeah. That's really that's a uh, uh, dead ringer for Dorothy's mother. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Well, <laughs> we might as well have cast Dorothy's mother. Right? <laughs> well, you brought up Jaws too, and we we don't need to go into the weeds on it again. It's something that's been covered to death. Um, but there is an interesting kind of dichotomy that happens with that. So, with Jaws two, and listeners, again, Google it. You will find everything you need to know about it. I don't want to make you relive the hell. Um, but then you were brought in for post-production on Wolfen. Yes. Uh, the director was fired and um, you were brought in on that. Ha having gone through what you went through with Jaws, how did that feel when you were pulled into a project that had been taken away from somebody else? Was I guilty? Uh, no, because uh, I, it was almost four hours long uh mm -hmm. when i came in and i felt that wolfen was a notoriously troubled film yeah that <laughs> wadley had just done a terrible job i mean it it was an extremely scary book mm -hmm. it was a thriller a wonderful book and yeah. he had decided i felt pompously and as a to me it's a kind of artistic sin to distort it and make it into a thing about the environment. Mm -hmm. um, I'm all for the environment, but uh, not at the expense. You, you have to somehow be true to the subject that you're doing. Yeah. So I, 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 I lacked respect for Mike Wadley, so I didn't feel I was. Now, when they brought me in on, 
a Hal Ashby picture. Yeah, I, felt, I was going to ask about I that felt too. Quite differently, I called up Ashby and said <laughs> I, I was going to try to defend his work as much as I could. And what did he want me to do? And, uh, but that was a different relationship. Yeah, and for our for our listeners, what movie was that? Uh, Eight Thousand Ways to Die. Yeah, right. and uh, I I love Hal Ashby. He's he's one oh, yeah. of my absolute favorites. Harold and Maude is my favorite movie. He was not <laughs> at the top of his game then, but I mean, well, no, no. I mean, that was years later. And, <laughs> yeah. um, what what was he like as a friend and a person? He seems like such a humanist at heart. I didn't know him very well. Didn't know him well enough. Okay, just curious. So after Weeds, you're, um, you guys wrote a TV movie. You did a children's film, Prancer, a family yeah. film, I should say. Some more TV work. Um, and eventually you end up back here, back home in Indiana. Right. <laughs> um, with the fields you used to roam. Uh, and started Filmmakers. Right. And tell me a little about that experience when you when you give up Hollywood. Well, we had such a good time doing Prancer. That was such a, I shot it on our farm here. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, it was such a wonderful place to work. And there was so much cooperation from the local area that uh, mm -hmm. I wanted to do it again. So we did uh, a piece of Eden also on our farm and then mm -hmm. it suspended animation, you know, partly. Yeah. I've uh, done, I think five pictures of, I'm always interested in the, um, I had Bill Rabane here from, he's a Wisconsin filmmaker who um, made uh, the giant spider invasion. It was the movie that he made the most money off of. It actually competed with Jaws, um, but he, he sticks to Wisconsin for all the films he makes. And as like you guys. Bergman's Island, right? What's that? Like England Bergman's Island. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> except with more cheese and cows yeah. but um and you're you're kind of doing the same thing now in laporte where you're staying local you're shooting local mm -hmm. and that's actually in indiana we're seeing more of that there's um pegasus down in bloomington that shot some um that i know i know my girlfriend's actually the makeup artist on most of their films so <laughs> um they you know they're doing a lot of feature film work there you're doing feature film work up north is Indiana becoming more hospitable to filmmakers? I don't think government-wise. I mean, I, I don't. The film commission has never been of any use, mm -hmm. as far as I'm concerned. But uh, certainly, this area is is extremely receptive. Yeah, I mean, you get a you know the, the local car dealer gives you cars on deferment for the crew to go down the motels put people up on deferment mm -hmm. and the restaurants feed you on deferment and well that's nice yeah i mean it's uh it's you could get a lot of value without much cash are the locals getting used to the the idea of now when they see camera you you always think about trying to shoot in a within a community a lot of well, like takes get blown because people walk up. You shooting a movie, and you're, <laughs> you're in the middle of a take. <laughs> There's none of that here. For some, that's great. In New York, yes, they just walk right through the shot. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's let's talk a little bit then about what you were doing with filmmakers when you began. So this, you started with Piece of Eden, right? 
which uh your wife wrote and um it's it's one of those again where it's low budget it's a lot of unknown actors and you've got Tyne Daly in there when you're dealing with that um where you've got actors maybe who are low experience in some cases no experience coming into film when you've got somebody like Tyne Daly and Frederick Forrest there are they positive presence for those other people are they helping to build up then frederick forrest was time i found difficult she was at a stage in her life where i think she was uh <clears throat> the course of the day taking more and more uppers so oh. she would start out quite lethargic and decent in the morning but by late afternoon would be talkative and bossy and try to direct the other actors and oh. i fired her i fired her for trying to direct irma st paul okay i was <laughs> there was a lot with that one that that i read about i you know when you get in and start reading about these i never yeah. know what's valid and what's yeah. not but <laughs> that was that was a very measured question on my part to get oh, there so <laughs> didn't lie <laughs> no no she was great yeah. um <laughs> but frederick forrest though i again well, a great character he, actor just an incredible yeah, I, character I, I, actor. i'd always wanted to work with him I, yeah i'm a big a big fan yeah I, he's one of those people who again can um just lift a movie up yeah no no matter what well, um let's look at a, i mean the cook and apocalypse and i mean he's just, no yeah He's great in that. He's a wonderful actor, yeah. Yeah. Uh, when you're then shooting the a low budget picture locally in an area you know very well, um, do you when when you're writing these or when your wife was writing these, were you guys thinking locally as it was being written? Oh, sure. Yeah. yeah. Thinking yeah. about like what locations you could use and all of that. Well, you know, it's so helpful as a writer if you if you really visualize the place you're writing about it, it just mm -hmm. makes it much easier because you're there. Yeah, yeah. But especially for me, Dorothy. Uh, I guess maybe because she was an actress, but she had the ability to put herself in a place, uh, which is a big part of acting. Yeah, I've come to realize over the years, and she. Uh, even though she's not writing about a place that she knows, she's uh, seeing the room and that kind of stuff, you know. Right. Feeling the wind or, you know. <clears throat> so you're as she's writing, she you're saying she can put herself in those places as she's writing this? Yeah. How interesting. Yeah. Wow. Now, that... you know, I did this picture... Uh, the Looking Glass with uh, mm -hmm. a twelve-year-old girl, Grace Tarnow. Yeah, and she had that ability too. Uh, we were rehearsing in a big, uh, what had been a lumberyard, um, and it was a scene where uh, a boy calls her out in the middle of the night to seduce her in the mm -hmm. in the screen porch or something. Yep. Yeah. And he calls her, and she came out, and I just saw middle of the afternoon brightly lit it's for her it's dark and she's feeling the breeze and hearing the owls and i mean uh, without 
any acting experience at all without yeah. uh, being told uh, she's there. You know. Wow. Yeah. That the Looking Glass again. Uh, you it was written by your late wife Dorothy. Yeah. Um, obviously, very uh, personal, um, and I, I guess a little semi autobiographical. Oh, more than yeah, more than. Well, it's about our experience with our grandson. We couldn't get off his iPad, you know. Mm -hmm. so Change it to a girl, and you know. Yeah. <laughs> when you're making a movie that's that personal, um, and this is one that you, you'd originally titled Swan Song, yeah. with, I think you knew at that point that it was going to be your last film together. Um, and I'll, I'll disclose, I, I'm a widower also. I lost my wife to cancer in 2019. Wow. And um, as in your case, you know, it's, it's something that you see coming way before it happens well dorothy had uh, alzheimer's you know right she had alzheimer's and, and with my wife she was writing about alzheimer's too. yeah yeah when you when you can see it coming down the road you know where this is headed yeah and in your case being able to have a collaboration like this did it did it help you guys personally in dealing with what you knew was coming well, it did, you know, it was so full emotionally. Um, and if you don't want to speak about this, we can no, move on. One, one, I do. One, one of the, okay. uh, that, what is one of the great things about this business that we're in? Uh, is that whatever bad happens to you in your life, you have something, construct a constructive place to put it. Uh, so you know, no amount of angst is wasted. <laughs> uh, this was a, a prime example of that, you know. Yeah. Certainly, I mean, she dies, right? Dies on camera. Mm -hmm. And I wondered about that as I watched it. Was that difficult to shoot? Yes, and difficult at the editing room for me. I'm know. sure. Yeah, sure. Uh, but so full emotionally i mean you know i spent the whole time with my heart aching shooting that film and cutting it have to be careful not to let your heart ache so much that you don't polish it to other people's satisfaction as well as you sure yeah <laughs> <clears throat> well i know it becomes it becomes all consuming at points um yeah. just you know knowing that your life is going to change irreversibly and yeah. there's nothing you can do about it. Yeah. Um, other than just be there. Yeah. With right. that person. Um, and it, as you guys were, I don't know how to phrase this. You're working on this, you know, you're telling a story that is yet to come, but is coming. Um, it's inevitable. It's almost like you're telling a true story that just hasn't happened yet. Right. Um, well, I staged your funeral, right? Yeah. <laughs> no, so Dorothy, Dorothy died. I guess that's where I was going. Is did it did it become a little bit? Well, will this work for you, hon? <laughs> this is what I have planned. <laughs> yeah. Look, I mean, I, well, first of all, it's like a love that funeral is a love letter to her with her. John Simon review and everything, right? Yeah. Um, and all of the her most attractive modeling shots. But uh, 
so Dorothy died last uh, January 7th. Just in January, yeah. So I, I felt, gee, I did the funeral. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so we just had a memorial at the house. So Yeah. For for Dorothy was in in the looking glass because of that because uh, she was able to see at least a little bit what it would be and how you wanted to honor her life. Sure. Did that did that help her a little bit? Of course, I think yeah. Yeah. Wow, what a beautiful opportunity for you it for was. both of you to be able to do that. Yeah, absolutely. It's just, um, my, my wife was very closed off and did not want to talk about it, even when she went into hospice. So, um, in, in a, we, we never really confronted it. We just rode with it. Um, so to be able to have not only the opportunity to be really frank about it with each other, but also just say, let's just, let's just pretend what it's going to be like first and put that all together it, it it just seems to me as um especially in your case where you became caretaker and and moving through with her along that way uh were you able then as things got worse able to look back at what you did not just with the looking glass but with your life together um you know film after film and all, all the tv work yeah. uh Yes, sure. Just being able to, I guess, hold her hand in a different way. Yes. You know, of course, she lived 10 years after. After Looking Glass, yeah. So uh, that's a a long time to fight Alzheimer's. It is. Yeah. Yeah, it's an an ugly, ugly disease. And I'm very sorry you both had to go through that. me too. Canada, it's unimaginable. Yes, I'm sure. <laughs> but there it is. Yeah. And there were even towards the end, there were moments of great love and you know. Yeah. Wonderful. I wanted to ask about Jeff Puckett. Oh yeah. He shows up in a lot of your work. Um he's a uh, local actor steel worker. Yeah. I, that's I was so curious about him. How did you come <laughs> across him? Well, I saw him in a play at the Laporte Little Theater, and I just thought this is a very talented guy, and so I read him for uh, a part in uh, a piece of Eden. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, I always try to use him if I can. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he shows up in uh, I think all the movies you've made. There, piece of Eden, suspended animation, yeah. uh, Looking Glass, and Girls of Summer, your most recent. Right. Um, he shows up in all of those, and he's a great presence. He is. It, 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 he's good. Yeah. Yeah. He's really good. Yeah. And he's a steel worker because yeah. you see those rough edges and it's not acting. And uh, I was wondering what he did for a profession. <laughs> so, and he's got another work as well. He's showing up in other things, yeah. um, short films and, and TV movies and things yeah. like that. So uh, just interesting. When you give an actor like that an opportunity that grows into other things, um, Obviously, that's got to it's got to feel good. That of course, yeah. Um, when you're especially making low budget films, and especially a low budget film in a place like Laporte, Indiana, where you know 
it's not exactly where people from Chicago are looking to go for acting gigs. Right. And you're yeah. you're getting these people that are local actors and giving them these opportunities. Um, are you spending a lot of time early on, especially with them, uh, teaching film acting, I guess, because it's very different from stage acting. Not that much, but with Grace Tarnow uh, in, you know, uh, Looking Glass, mm -hmm. Dorothy and I would pick her up after school, maybe two or three days a week and bring her home and have cookies and milk and just get to know her and mm -hmm. read a little bit, improvise a little bit. We did that for four or five months before. So I suppose that was, it wasn't so much teaching as it was a process of falling in love, the three of us. Yeah. That definitely fit into the, the work. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, when you, compared to what you were doing earlier in your career, where you were rehearsing out scene after scene and, and working through things, kind of like a theatrical director would do. I, I still do that. You still do that. We'll do it on every picture. So as you're, as time has gone by, have you honed that rehearsal process into uh, you know what works and what doesn't? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I feel I'm just doing the same thing I've always done. Yeah. I know. In, I mean, as, I've, I've gotten better with people. I've gotten. Yeah. Uh, and as you get older, people uh, think you must know something. Yeah. Well, they don't give you shit as much. <laughs> I know from my perspective as a playwright, when I would rehearse pieces that I'd written, um, I wouldn't, I would never direct what I'd written. Cause I, I, I just don't have the capacity yeah. to do that. Um, but I would sit in on rehearsals and be able to do rewrites almost on the fly. I could yeah. see, you know, they're never going to get that line out. That's on me. I got to figure out how to make that work or um, a scene just wasn't, wasn't at all working um i know the director and i could sit and talk and be able to go you know is it is it an actor problem is it a writing problem right. what do we what do we got to work out here and um especially then when you're doing films that you've written or you and your wife have written or that she's written having that person right there yeah. and then being able to watch being able to to understand what's going to work what's not oh, um yeah, yeah. And, and be able to do and those work, rewrites and, and work through you know work on this mm -hmm. rehearsal period sure yeah thanks hey. so much again for your time i really appreciate it i loved it yeah okay. thanks bye-bye well that was an abrupt ending john had to get to an appointment so we had to cut it short but i really appreciate him taking the time even getting back with me the next day when he had some internet issues to spend time and talk about his great career and all the interesting things he's done uh, really a fascinating guy. Next up, we've got Gregory Scott Cummins. That's right, Mac's dad from Always Sunny in Philadelphia, but also Tommy from Hackalander, Osborne in Action USA. He was in an episode of Hunter, and they loved it so much, they brought him back to be the bad guy in a Hunter special film in the early aughts. He was also in an episode of Walkford, Texas Ranger. I mean, come on, them some creds. Uh, yeah, so we got that coming up. Get out in the world, have fun, have a drink or two, but take care of your servers, folks, because it's the Walter Paisley Movie House, and we do not piss on hospitality. See you next time. <laughs>